We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Dolly Chug, an award-winning social psychologist and management professor at the New York University Stern School of Business, where she teaches MBA courses in leadership and management. Dolly's research focuses on bounded ethicality, which she describes as the psychology of good people. Her first book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias is outstanding and has earned extraordinary praise. Dolly's TED Talk has almost 5 million views, and her popular newsletter, Dear Good People, is a monthly gift in my inbox. It is full of evidence-based tips on how to be the inclusive person you mean to be. Her latest book, A More Just Future, Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change, will be released by the time that this podcast airs on November 1st. What I appreciate most about you, Dolly, is your humanity. You teach us while you're learning. It's clear that your first filter is, how have I made this mistake myself? Or what can others learn from this? You offer us practical, thoughtful, and factual insights, and you guide us with humility and grace. Thank you for joining us on ROG, Dolly. Oh, Shannon, thank you for such an amazing introduction. You've you've filled my heart with that, and it is a thrill to be with you. Uh, great. It's great to be with you again. We met at a Women's Leadership Conference years ago, and I've been a raving fan ever since. Thrilled that this book has come out, because my other one is worn out. Um, so you describe yourself as an adult willing to sacrifice comfort in the present to pursue a more just future. Share with us a little bit about what you mean when you say that comfort that you're willing to give up to make a difference. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I'm definitely speaking from a place of aspiration of uh, there are moments when I'm more comfortable sacrificing comfort and sometimes I'm less. What I mean by it is, um, uh, let me give an example of when I didn't do that. I, when my, I have two teenage, two teenagers, and when they were younger, I was very invested in reading to them every night, like, you know, long past when they were able to read for themselves, including a year where um, I read to them from the Little House on the Prairie book series every single night. And we, we had so, like, it, immersed in the world of Laura Ingalls, who wrote these books about her family in the 1800s living in South, what we now call South Dakota and Minnesota, and the, the hardships they faced and the values they had in their family and this incredible um, story of resilience and patriotism. And I was really loving that my kids like pretty much thought Laura was like their sister. And we got so into it that we decided to even take a family vacation, um, you know, going from the East Coast to those places where the Ingalls lived to see the actual homestead and the prairie and everything. And I mean, Shannon, I was very smugly patting myself on the back for my parenting. I was like, 
educational <laughs> and fun and affordable. The girls are like wearing their little prairie dresses every day. They were so into it. And I do recall, you know, in between patting myself on the back, sort of looking around. I mean, we were literally looking at the land and being like, wait, wait a minute. This, this land, wasn't this Native American land? Wasn't there, you know, and, 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 and then getting immediately uncomfortable. So we're talking about uncom- uncomfort, discomfort getting immediately uncomfortable, not knowing how to think about it, not knowing how to talk about it, not knowing how to cope with the emotions, the uncomfortable emotions that were coming up for me that I had just spent a year telling my kids these stories and not mentioning that. And and so what I did, rather than feel uncomfortable, was just like, put that aside. I was just like, and we're gonna keep it moving. And we had a great trip and my kids loved it. And we have awesome pictures of them running through a prairie, just like, you know, in the TV show. And as the decade has passed since then, I've thought back to that trip time and time again. I've thought back to that year of reading to them time and time again and wondered what it would have been like if I could have um, sacrificed some comfort in order to help my kids contextualize, not that those stories were wrong, but they were incomplete. Um, they were uh, they were telling the story of a family that was benefiting from land and lives being taken from other families. And uh, my kids are absolutely old enough to understand that. I mean, kids understand fair play and someone took my things and I mean, they get that. Um, so it wasn't that they weren't ready, it's that I wasn't. And because I wasn't willing to sacrifice my comfort, I told them a lot of partial truths mm. that they now have to unlearn. I've left them with that mm. burden. Thank you for that. And that's just so illuminating. And uh, here we go. Like, it's exactly what I love about you, or because you always think about your own humanity and your own, like, experience with some of these things. And then you put it out there to us and then you say, okay, so because of this, I dug in and here's what I learned and here's what you can do. So, so, you know, that's why everybody has to read this book. Um, I've got writing all over mine. Um, so, you know, in the book, you are talking about exactly the example that you're using here, which is an example of a whitewashed history. And I know for some people, they're going to have an emotional reaction, just even that phrase. But if you could please help us understand um, how that word is really descriptive of much of our history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I want to preface this by saying, being really clear that I'm not a historian or, I mean, frankly, I'm not even really, I would say, a history buff as I've gotten older, <laughs> as things within my own life are now described as history, I've become like more interested in history. But um, but I, I, I wouldn't even say that like, I don't even, I don't watch the History Channel or, so this isn't me trying to present myself as being expert on what is and is not whitewashed history. What I am trying to offer though, is an, my growing understanding that um, many of us have learned a history that is um, told from a certain perspective, and that perspective is of white settlers um, who 
often had more rights than non-white uh, residents of the of what we now call the United States of America, and and those stories have been you know sort of filtered through gatekeeping, whether it's in our textbooks or in our holidays or in our movies and sort of the narratives and the stories that we hear in our culture that that be, because we've heard more of the perspective from some some communities than others, the histories are whitewashed as a result. And when we hear, just to stick with the little house example for a, a moment, if we were to hear from other families who were living at the same time um, and had lived there longer, uh, we would heard of we would have heard a very different perspective on what Laura was describing at the time, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, so so I'm I'm using the term I, I didn't coin the term but I'm using the term whitewashed to capture something that's like a partial history and sometimes uh, sometimes there's actual like uh, it's not just incomplete sometimes it's untrue but often it's just incomplete we just don't have all of it. Mm. Yeah, that, and I think that is an example of the kind of thing that might be a whole new idea for some people, yeah. like that just awareness. And I think the more that people are learning about our history and the different perspectives of our history and what words have been excluded in much of history or stated yeah. differently, to your point, not that it's untrue, but it's just incomplete. So your role as a social psychologist is really relevant when for a lot of things, but when we're thinking about how we feel when we're confronted with things like this, with these really uncomfortable but necessary things to to grow and evolve. So how how does a social psychologist help us deal with history when we're understanding it in this way? Yeah. I mean, that's where I feel like I do, you know, I may not be the historical expert, but I am expert in exactly, as you said, emotions and relationships and perceptions of other people. Um, As a social psychologist, I think a lot about, uh, in my area of research, uh, the stereotypes we have of others and the biases we sometimes have, often outside of our own awareness, unintentional, unconscious biases. And so I'm interested in thinking about our relationship with our past, our relationship with our um, our ancestors or with other people's ancestors and how that affects what we're doing now. Um, and so 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 that that involves areas of research like perceptions, how our perceptions uh, it turns out it, there's research that says how you perceive somebody, let's say something, bad happens to somebody, you know, I'm standing here and like, you know, somebody knocks me over. Um, it turns out the human mind perceives that differently. If it, if you describe it to someone as happening right now versus happening a year in the future versus happening a year in the past, that there's these like interesting wrinkles and wrinkles in time, um, the researchers call it, in, uh, in how we perceive things past versus present versus future, that that person who got knocked over, it turns out I'm more likely to blame them if I'm told that event happened in the past. There's something my mind will do that will actually sort of attach blame to the victim that I wouldn't do if it happened right now, and I wouldn't do as much if I was told it was going to happen in the future. That's one very specific example, but it shows this relationship between psychology 
in history, how the mind works and how it perceives things that have happened mm, in the past. That is so interesting. And what does the role of nostalgia have in all of this, right? Like when you think about looking back, like even just thinking about reading to your daughters, right? I mean, there's something nostalgic about that or going on family trips or sometimes when we're thinking about things in the past, we revisit them with that sense of nostalgia and almost like it feels like a fairy tale in a way. So, you know, what is the price we pay for that even? Oh my God, I love that question. The way you phrased it. Yeah, so, um, so nostalgia is a very specific form of history. It's a sentimental, personal form of history. And um, just as you said, like, you know, I look back, for, for example, you know, when my kids were born, um, they were born a year apart. And for a variety of reasons, in addition to all the usual challenges of having young children, there was just a lot going on in my life that made it a difficult time. Um, but I would not want to relive those years, to be completely honest. Um, that said, you know, we still have like these tiny little frocks that these babies wore when they were born or whatever. And, you know, I, if I pull that out and I look at it, I get gaga with the nostalgia. I mean, I'm just like, oh, take me back if I could just, you know, oh my God. Um, and uh, and so there, there is this version of history that feels very personal and very sentimental that we gives that gives us a sense of belonging. The researchers of nostalgia say it gives us a real sense of belonging. And that feels good. And that there's nothing wrong with that. Like psychologically, that seems like a healthy thing for us to be able to enjoy, you know, when your favorite old song comes on, a healthy feeling. The challenge, however, when we're thinking about a country that has massive racial disparities um, on almost every meaningful outcome, health, economic, education, housing, I mean, you name it, we have massive racial disparities in this country. Those didn't appear today. They didn't appear yesterday. They have been for centuries developing in our country. Mm -hmm. The problem is if our nostalgic view of the past limits our ability to understand where those disparities are coming from, it will limit our ability to address them today and fix them tomorrow. Mm. That's what nostalgia costs. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful and, and like almost hard to understand. I think all of us just need to think about how that might be affecting us um, because there's like that long time ago illusion, yeah. right? Like that like story, it, it sounds like a story. Like I think a lot of stories do sound like that. Um, and it shows up in our lives and it distorts our understanding of how the past affects the present. I think that's what you're talking about. And I wonder, just as leaders, like a lot of our listeners are leaders in organizations where they're leading people and they're mm -hmm. having listening sessions and they're really mm -hmm. embracing diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging more than ever. Um, and I think that this is an important part of that puzzle for them to truly empathize and understand that, you know, the, the way that they remember history or even just the way that they've been taught history um, is is not the full picture. That's right. And so, so to connect some of those dots in an organization, um, an organization might look around and say, "Well, it's interesting. You know, we have um, 
our most of our leadership is white and most of the junior people or the people in support roles are not white. And um, it might just sort of because that is such a commonplace pattern in so many organizations, it might not even be questioned or thought about or it might be externalized. Well, you know, that's just those are the people who apply for those jobs. So what, you know, how am I to control that um, pipeline? Um, the, the, both of those reactions can be made richer and more actionable if we can say, let me connect the dots between what I see in my organization today and how we got here. You know, wh wh why why is it that um, uh, the roles that don't that we're not requiring college education tend to have more non-white applicants than the ones requiring college education? Why is that? First of all, is that even the right criteria for the job? Do you actually need a college education for every one of these jobs? Um, and, 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 and so, so, so why is that? And then also, where did it come from? Are we sacrificing massive pools of talent because we don't understand where this disparity came from? And I can't understand where this disparity came from if a very common barrier that ties to nostalgia is if my, my mindset is my family pulled uh, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. My grandfather, my grandmother, my great-grandparents, they immigrated, they did this, they did this, the Mayflower. If, if those stories are absolutely important and at least partially true, but if we can't put them next to the stories of other families that didn't have the same opportunities, didn't have the same level playing field, then we can't understand why my organization looks the way it looks right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And are there practical ways that we can connect those dots? Absolutely. I mean, part of it is simply building our knowledge base. And um, so the so the book I wrote, uh, A More Just Future, really focuses on dealing with the emotions that come up when you try to connect the dots, because intellectually, it's actually pretty easy to do. I mean, it's all out there. It's not, you know, it's a, a click away on your computer, but emotionally, it's really hard. So one of the practical things that we've got to do is when I, when, you know, when I want to defend the nostalgia, when I want to sort of protect myself from that discomfort that I was describing in myself, when I, you know, some of that discomfort shows up as feelings of guilt or shame or disbelief or anger. When those emotions start coming up, the first most practical thing to do is what I call dressing for the weather. And it's, you know, it's this very you know, familiar concept to all of us that you have some outing planned. And for whatever reason, you didn't have enough layers or you didn't have an umbrella or whatever, you didn't bring the sunblock. And as a result, what could have been a great day ends up being a terrible day. And you maybe you cut the day short or you skip that thing you were gonna do, whatever, you don't end up doing the day. And the same thing happens when you're trying to connect the dots you don't end up like doing the thing, like engaging in it because you didn't dress for the weather. What dressing for the weather means is expecting some of those emotions. If you're having some of those emotions, you're doing it right. That's a, that's actually great. That's what I didn't realize when I was standing on that prairie is when those emotions were coming up, I should have been like, oh, this is telling me there's something here. There's a moment where I could unlearn something and learn something mm -hmm. and help my children do it. Yes. Instead, I was just like, no, no. Um, and so dressing for the weather is like, okay, 
there's going to be some stuff that's going to come up, some emotions, some paradox, the paradox, you know, there's going to be this paradox of like my family absolutely outworked everyone, incredible work ethic, earned everything they got. And a whole bunch of other families worked just as hard and never got the opportunities my family got. You know, that, that's just one example that might be true for some people. And, and that's a paradox. Like, how do you sit with both of those conflicting truths? Mm, yeah. um, dressing for the weather means, you know, how many paradoxes can I spot? That's good if I see them. How many uncomfortable emotions can I sort of notice in myself? That's good. You're doing it right. Yes. Oh, my gosh. This is this is so helpful to anticipate this, to recognize that it's a signal that you're really learning something, that you are, in fact, opening your mind, yeah. that you're trying to grapple with the paradox, which just even by definition is like these conflicting things. Yep. Um, so one of the things you just said that I want to double click on, which is you talked about unlearning something. So love to hear your thoughts on the value of being an unlearner and what do the scientists say about unlearning and relearning yeah and, and and so so the definition of unlearning is to have to take something that you've accepted as as true or a belief you've adopted and now reverse it in your head it is no longer true it is no longer a knowledge that's that's valid and so you've got to like let go of it and then learn something new. And so what what um, scientists who study unlearning have said is that that's harder. Unlearning is harder to do than learning, that you would rather learn something the right way than have to go back and unlearn and learn it, which I think is intuitive. Like that sort of makes sense to me that, that you know, sometimes harder to unpack and repack than just pack for something. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I, I believe one of the studies, if I remember right, looked at even little kids and looked at their abilities to, you know, kids, of course, are like learning factories, right? They're just constantly learning, um, unfortunately, from us. <laughs> and so um, they, uh, they looked at little kids and looked at how quickly they were able to learn something if we teach it to them the right way versus if they have to unlearn it down the road. So we really, there's a huge payoff with kids if we can get it right early. So to, do, and how, how do we do that? Like, how do we address yeah, that? So, so I think in terms of like the kinds of like reckoning with whitewashed history, it really is a matter of giving them a fuller sense of history. So, you know, if, if we were to stick with what um, I was experiencing with my own children, I would have not, I would have still, if I could do it again, I would absolutely still read them the little house stories. I would still take them where I took them. I would also read them other stories of families from that time, mm -hmm. we would talk about kind of how these fit together. Um, so it didn't, it wouldn't mean that they couldn't embrace who Laura and her parents and her sisters were, but it, they could also embrace the other stories that they hadn't heard. Mm -hmm. When we would go to visit the locations we went to visit, we would have also gone to, unfortunately, where the, the families that used to live on that land are probably on reservations now, their descendants, but we would go to the reservation if we were, if we were, you know, if visitors were allowed. And, and we would have had a more complete picture. And I think that would have um, made for an equally awesome trip, if not more awesome. And it definitely would have helped my kids mm -hmm. when they um, tried to. Under so now when they look, you know, when COVID 
when COVID came and we kept hearing about racial disparities and how COVID was affecting different communities, you know, the Lakota populations of, of the Midwest were often being mentioned as ones that were having terrible, like, you know, terrible COVID um, outcomes. And that would make more sense to my kids if I had done that trip differently mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such helpful advice because it's like a yes and solution. It's like, yes, Absolutely. we can still do some of those traditional things and it's responsible when we also include the other parts of the story, Um, you know, just to be fair and even for ourselves to do the learning ourselves. Right. And I think some of the things that you talk about in the book really do bring up a feeling of guilt and shame and disbelief and uh, like anger and like a lot of negative feelings. So I just wonder like, what do you recommend that we do with those feelings? Like I remember one of the ways that you wrote Mm -hmm. this was like, the condemnation and blanket of shame. And I was like, oh, I am so wrapped in that blanket right now. <laughs> so, and, the, and that's not, I know that that's not the purpose of your book entirely, but I do think that in order for us to actually grow and be the people that we want to be, then we really have to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's absolutely what I also very much, I, I, I share that blanket with you. Um, and it, it, so, so, so one thing is useful to know, um, researchers of what's called uh, emotional forecasting or affective for- forecasting is the technical term, um, have shown time and time again that we overestimate how bad bad emotions will feel and how long bad emotions will feel bad. We actually do the same with good emotions, by the way, but more relevant for this conversation. When we when we um, don't wanna see um, a movie that's gonna make us feel ashamed of something or guilty about something, we overestimate how long we're gonna feel awful about it and how deeply we're gonna feel awful about it. We, are, we recover, our emotional baseline kind of comes back, whatever that baseline is. Um, so that's one thing to know is that that we can handle more than we realize in, a, in the emotional space. That said, one thing that, um, one tool that can help us be more resilient through those emotions is uh, affirming what our values are. This is called values affirmation. And again, it's research that's been done um, in different contexts. Some, some of the contexts are even just academic, like um, remaining sort of resilient through a tough semester if you're a college student. Um, but I think it can apply here too. And the idea of values affirmation is to, to, to think in a deliberate way, maybe even write you know, a paragraph about what are the values that you hold dear. You know, let's think about it in terms of your values as an American. What are the values you hold dear? What do you care about? You know, maybe it's maybe the, the value of justice means a lot to you and it's something you would write about. Maybe the value of equality means a lot to you and you would write it out. Maybe the value of sort of, um, you know, adventure, the adventure and adventuresomeness of an American, like whatever it is to sort of reflect on that value. What the research shows is that that reflection kind of anchors us in that value. And so when those emotions of like guilt and shame or whatever start, start hitting us, it allows us to kind of stick with it because we're like, wait, this, I, it's not even a conscious process, it appears in the research, that we just 
the value kind of anchors us into what we care about mm-hmm. and allows us to push through that emotion, which by the way, once again, isn't going to last as long as we think it is. Yes. And, and while we're pushing through, um, and are you recommending like we try to understand what we're feeling and then try to learn more about whatever that thing is that, you know, cause I think sometimes it's just that like sixth sense that all of a sudden you think, Oh my gosh, like, wait, why, why are all of our senior executives mm. white and primarily male? And right. then you think, Oh, wait a minute. Am I perpetuating this? Have I contributed to this? And then I think then there was like, okay, and then what, like, what do we do with that? Exactly. With that emotion. No, don't just bury That's it, right. but how do we, you know, leverage it? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So absolutely. The reason, in, in addition to just an emotionally, we don't want to be uncomfortable forever. The reason we want to deal with those emotions is so we can do the intellectual work, the connecting of the dots, the analyzing of, as you said, of like the, the, the organization we're part of, the community we're part of. And and look for solutions. Notice what's what patterns there are. Analyze the data. Take the feedback from members of the community, and then do something about it. And so, mm-hmm. what usually is stopping us? It's it's not that we can't like intellectually figure out how to do all that. It's that we have to deal with those emotions in order to. Yeah, do that. that's that's great. So we close each show with. An ROG takeaway tip. Okay. How to apply what we've learned to our own work and lives. So what, like, try this today kind of advice do you have for our listeners who are becoming aware and reckoning with these concepts and ideas? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I love, my go-to on this is to take whatever content you like to consume. Some people are into podcasts. Some people are into social media. Some people are movie buffs, whatever, whatever the thing is, books, anything, video games, anything. And look at what voices are represented. You know, the creator's voices, if there's characters, the character's voices, um, and see if you can look at, let's say, and do an audit of like the last five units you've consumed. And what are the what are the patterns in those voices? And then just make it in the next five a different pattern. In doing that, what I have found is I get exposed to so many ideas and stories and vocabulary and opinions and lived experiences that are just not on my radar because they're not in my world, they're not in my orbit. And in doing that, it opens up, it unlocks all sorts of possibilities when it comes to reckoning with whitewashed history. So uh, uh, to to summarize, uh, audit whatever content you consume, look at the last five, see if you can make the next five different. Love it. Oh, so great. So as you close in your epilogue in your book, which everybody has to get their hands on, A More Just Future, you write that we can love with a broken heart, we can do hard things and we can make things better and we can build yeah. a more just future. So thank you so much, Dolly, for really being a light in the dark. I am deeply grateful for you. Well, and to you as well, Shannon, I would say the exact same thing to you. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. 
We grow when we give. 우리는 나누면서 성숙합니다. We grow when we give. 우리는 나누면서 성숙합니다. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.